0: section in the back in the Westminster Confession on the sacraments, chapter 27. Uh, so if you've got that on a device or something else, that is just fine as well. Uh, we're going to be looking just at that first section today. That's the, uh, the topic for today's discussion. Is the ministry of the sacraments, we've covered three uh, of the four regular elements of worship, praise and prayer, and the ministry of the Word, uh, and today's sacraments. We're not going to go into uh, some of those occasional things, uh, thanksgivings and fastings and vows and oaths and all that sort of thing, uh, it has a place, but we're not, we're not going to talk about that. So today's going to be the last of our classes on the elements of worship, and then we're going to talk about a few more things in the following weeks uh, before we wrap up our discussion. So as we begin today, please join me in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you that uh, you have given us. Not only yourself, not only your word, not only your spirit, uh, but your signs and your seals as well, Uh, to communicate Christ and his benefits, uh, to be signs of your covenant of grace and your work with your people to confirm our interest in you, uh, to set us apart from the world and to engage us in service to Christ. Lord, thank you for the way that you work in your church through the sacraments. As we come to consider these things today, we pray that you would Give us wisdom today, O Lord. Uh, Help us to search your scriptures, Uh, not only our own uh, thoughts and our own theologies, but to hear from your word, uh, to understand how it is you communicate to your people. Lord, grow us in your grace uh, as we consider one of the means of grace that you've given to your church. Uh, Would you give us also the wisdom of your spirit and of your word uh, that we would test all of these things by you and what you've revealed Uh, so that we would come away as better worshipers, uh, ultimately, and so that our hearts would be enlarged to run after you. We pray that you would do these things uh, in the lives of your people, and for the sake of Jesus' name we ask, amen. So, uh, a few disclaimers this morning. It's always good to begin your class with disclaimers and set the bar low. Uh, The first disclaimer is that this class is going to be content-heavy. That's kind of the nature uh, of discussing the sacraments. Uh, now, that might sound like a disclaimer to prepare you that the class is going to be boring. Hopefully, that is not uh, what, uh, what we're communicating here. But rather just to say there's probably going to be an awful lot coming from this direction toward you. So feel free to stop me, uh, to interject, to ask your questions, or to add your comments uh, so that we can all grow together as we think through these things. The second disclaimer is that unless we were to expand this topic to cover lots of classes, and who knows, we might just do that. Uh, unless we were to expand this topic to cover lots of classes, we can only really begin to scratch the surface of what's going on in the sacraments and what we're doing. Uh, several years ago, we covered the sacraments as we went through the Westminster Confession, and we took three sessions to do that. So those was the summer of 2016. You can still find at least two of those sessions on our website uh, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into the theology behind what's going on, but, uh, but we're really uh, going to be scratching the surface. And I think that presents us with a bit of a dilemma. Here we are uh, studying worship, uh, not just the theology behind worship, but also the practice of worship and trying to uh, unite both of these things together. And, and our, uh, our desire, at least my desire, is to want to, to encourage us so that we can actually be better worshipers, so that we grow in the practice of worship and, and the doing of worship, not just so that our brains get big. Uh, but when we think about sacraments, uh, we can't easily separate what it is we're doing from uh, what it is they mean. Uh, in fact, we can do some of that with some of the other elements of worship. Uh, we've spoken already as uh, of prayer as, as sort of a an instinctual human response to who God is. Uh, and we can learn how to pray, and Jesus' disciples asked him uh, to teach them how to pray, uh, but there is, you know, we think of foxhole prayers. It's just sort of uh, the eruption of the heart. Oh Lord, I'm in need, and I don't even know if you're there, but, but hear me. And, and so there's a sense in which we can engage in those things without a real deep understanding of the mechanics behind prayer and how it works. It's certainly enriched when we grow in those things. The same thing with with praise. We spoke of that as sort of the the outpouring of the heart as well. And we can receive God's word and communication without understanding uh, how faith comes by hearing. We can simply hear God speak to us. Uh, That's just how we interact with one another. We understand how communication works. And so uh, all of these other elements, to some degree, we don't need to have. Uh, a really rich theology to understand and, and to engage in them. It's, it's enriched. Our, our worship is always enriched by understanding what's going on. But the sacraments are different. If we begin to try and separate what we're doing in the sacraments from what is actually happening in the sacraments and what the sacraments are for and why the Lord has given, of baptism some of the differences in, in churches that you've seen why is it that some churches practice baptism on infants uh, some only baptize believers well it's because of a difference in what we understand is happening in that sacrament and what that sacrament represents really what the picture is behind it uh, think of uh, why will some churches sprinkle and others dunk why do some churches have their baptisms uh, on a Friday evening gathering at a local pool uh, others will only administer the sacrament during the gathered worship on Sunday morning. Uh, the answer is that uh, all of these are tied to an understanding of our, our meaning, uh, the meaning behind the sacraments and what's going on there. Uh, and so as we're talking about what's happening in the sacraments, we have to dive into uh, what the meaning is. That's just to, to settle all these things up. There are really two aspects that I want us to grasp about the sacraments today. And if we can get these two or at least move in that direction, I think we'll be doing pretty well. Uh, The first aspect of the sacraments is to understand them as an act of God's communication. The second aspect is to understand the sacraments as an act of our worship. So something coming from God to us and something coming from us to God. Now, one of those is primary and one of them is secondary. Uh, And so we're going to begin with the primary aspect, and that is uh, sacraments as an act of God's communication. This is where we need to begin. Uh, Primarily, this is what the sacraments are. Uh, Things get more complicated uh, beyond this, but this is where we have to start. Take a look uh, in your Westminster Confessions. should be in the back of your Trinity Hymnal. Has anybody found the page already? Chapter 27? 864. 864. Uh, So here's what it says. Uh, Chapter 27 of the Sacraments, Section 1. At least here's the Westminster's take on this, and, and we'll... Uh, Think about some of the scriptures behind it. But it says, Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits, and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Now, you notice uh, that there is a direction here. Uh, There is an actor, and there is an acted upon. And the way that the Westminster in the first section is taking this is that God is the supreme actor in the sacraments, Uh, that they flow in a certain direction, that they're not necessarily things that we're doing for God, although there's an element of that, and we'll talk about that secondly. Uh, But they are, first of all, God's communication to us. Now, we understand this. Uh, we understand the way that we communicate to one another with words, but also with nonverbal cues. I stand here and I preach and my hands go all over the place. Uh, and I, you know, I do lots of things and gestures, and maybe you do the same when you're speaking, or uh, maybe you use, uh, you're teaching a class and you'll use a visual aid. Uh, this is one of the ways that we understand sacraments. They are God's nonverbal communication to us. Now, when we consider the sacraments as God's nonverbal communication, we automatically understand, uh, and we know just from understanding the way that the Bible is put together, that God does this all over the place. Now, there's this narrow aspect of of God's nonverbal communication in the sacraments, specifically in the New Testament sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, but God uses nonverbal communication to, to communicate his realities and his truths to his people all throughout Scripture. Think about uh, the sign of the rainbow genesis chapter 9 uh, god makes a covenant a pact with noah and with all of the creatures on the earth he says i will never again uh, bring a flood to destroy the earth and here's a sign that you can remember and in fact god says it's a sign for him he says when i see the rainbow he says i hang my bow in the clouds and when i see the rainbow i will be reminded that i will never again do these things it's nonverbal communication. And it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, it doesn't matter if you attach that significance to it or not, every once in a while when the rain is clearing and the sun is coming out, you'll see the rainbow, and believers who know their Bible should say God is communicating something to us, uh, not in his words, but alongside his word. So that's another aspect that we need to understand, not about the, just about the sacraments, but all of God's Communication to us is that it accompanies what he has revealed in his word about himself. That's the way the uh, uh, the rainbow worked. Think about the nonverbal communication of God's prophets. God had his prophets in the Old Testament. They said lots of things to the people, but they also did lots of things. So you've got Ezekiel laying on his side, uh, setting up that little image of Jerusalem and laying siege to it. You have Isaiah going around for something like three years naked. Uh, And all of this was to communicate what God was telling his people. It was his nonverbal communication alongside what he was revealing to them. They were going to go into exile, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, that all of these other things. You think of Hosea, uh, which we're going to be beginning uh, to read today. Hosea, go and take a wife of unfaithfulness. What's God doing? He's communicating to the people. This is what I've told you you're like. And he says, have have children of unfaithfulness and name them names. And their names are a memorial. Their names become communication from God, not my people, not beloved. That's the way that God's communicating himself. Can you think of any other uh, places in Scripture where God uses nonverbal communication uh, to, to present spiritual realities to his people? Rob. Okay. Okay. Now, he doesn't burn up the prophets of Baal. Uh, he sends his fire on the offering, and then the people gather around and they kill 400 prophets of Baal. He does uh, send another fire uh, that does not burn something up. Uh, well, yep, he does, he does send that that destroys Sodom, but he sends uh, the burning bush. He appears to Moses, uh, and scholars are really divided on what exactly does the Lord mean by this. Uh, but I think we can connect that to the revelation that the Lord makes later in that same chapter. Moses says, if I go to the people and, and they ask me, who is the Lord who has sent you, what shall I tell them his name is? And he says, I am. I am the one who is. I am, I am the self-sustaining one, and this fire is there on this bush, but it's not consumed. It's not, it's not taken up. It's this sort of self-sustained fire, and the Lord is revealing himself to Moses in this. He's Showing him what he is like by this nonverbal communication. How about other ones? Greg, was that in? You look like you're itching to raise your hand. Ronnie? Yeah. And and you think even what the Lord has communicated to him there, that you can see just the the reverse, just the back side of the Lord as he as he goes away. You can see his back. Uh just a small glimpse and and, and that's a lot like the way the Lord has revealed himself in the construction of the tabernacle. Um, I'm going to be with the people, and I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you how to construct the camp. The tabernacle's in the middle. The people are all around, and I'm in the middle, and so I'm with you. But there's this veil that's four inches thick and richly decorated, and nobody can go past it except for the priest once a year. That's nonverbal communication. The way that he has structured these things, and he gives them so many regulations so that they would understand that God's in the midst of his people, but he's incredibly holy. And we can only go before him uh, through the blood of sacrifice and through a mediator. And, and God's communicating himself. It's the same thing that God communicates to Moses there. Yes, I'm going to come to you. Yes, I'm going to show my mercy to you. But you can't see all of me because you can't because God is holy. And even Moses, this, this intercessor, can't see all of the Lord. Dave. Yeah. Absolutely. The entire sacrificial system, when we look in the book of Hebrews, says that they were all pointing towards Christ. Uh, the point of those sacrifices was not that the blood of bulls and goats could actually take away sins, but to use sacramental language, they were signs pointing beyond themselves to some greater reality. The greater reality was Christ. Uh, and it was, this, it was this sacrifice that had to happen. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so you see, yeah, people bringing their offerings, and, and there is a price that must be paid for sin. We need to take that seriously. Think of the Day of Atonement, uh, where they actually have two animals, and one is slain, and the other one, the priest puts his hand on it and and transfers the sin of the people to the goat, and then they send it off into the wilderness. So it's a reminder not only that there is uh, that there is sacrifice that has to happen, that, that blood has to happen to remove the sins of the people, but the Lord removes the sins of the people from them, far away into the wilderness where they will not be dealt with, as, as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our transgressions from us. And the Lord constantly, over and over and over again in Scripture, communicates spiritual realities through this sort of nonverbal communication. Good. And there are lots of others we could, we could think about. When you think of Jesus and his miracles. Now, the point was not just to do a parlor trick. Wow, this is great. We've got wine at this wedding. Well, no, the point is so that you would know that Jesus is the one who can create whatever because he is the creator. He's God Almighty and he takes water and he turns it into wine. It's child's play for the one who made everything out of nothing in the span of six days and all very good. That's the sign uh, that he's giving them. It's nonverbal communication. and They were meant to see it. And the people knew that. Uh, they came to Jesus later and it's important that we're using And that John uses this word sign to speak of Jesus' miracles. It's The same word that we're using when we're talking about sacraments. They're signs. They're symbols of something else. And that's what they wanted. They wanted that communication. Show us a sign. What sign will you give us so that we will believe you? And he speaks of the sign of of Jonah and all these other things. We could uh, could go on and on. But we know how this works. Uh, Symbols point past themselves to greater realities. They communicate to us something of God's character and his work in humanity. Now, does God need to use these forms of nonverbal communication? Does he, has to, does he have to do this in order to communicate himself effectively? What do you think? Dave? Dave? So you're saying that if there is a need, the need does not rest on God and His lack of ability to communicate Himself clearly, but rather our limitations, human nature. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. Uh, Of course, the Lord can communicate Himself and His grace perfectly. He has done so in Scripture. He's given us His Word, and we talked about that last time. We looked at Psalm 19. Uh, the law of the Lord is pure and true and right and sure and all of these other things. God's not limited. Uh, He wasn't drafting uh, scripture. He wasn't inspiring his prophets and going, oh, no, actually, scratch that. I meant to say this other thing. Uh, And it's not as though he gives us these symbols to make up for what he wasn't able to communicate. You know, you talk to married couples, and sometimes you get into the discussion of what's your love language? Uh, And one, it's physical affection, and the other, it's uh, time well spent, and another it's words, words of affirmation, and married couples have a hard time with that because they need to figure out how the other one understands communication of love and, and how we don't communicate in the same way you know, god 's communication is always perfect, and if there's a limitation here it's it's on our side uh, the, the sacraments are benefits for us because we are tangible people we 're uh, created not just as a disembodied soul, but we 've got a body we live. Uh, in a world of tangibles, this is the uh, what we live and breathe in, and this is what we understand. And so many of the spiritual realities that the Lord is communicating to us are unseen. And so it is his grace, it is his mercy and his kindness to us that he gives us these visible things so that we can understand unseen realities. Here's how the Belgic Confession says it. It says, We believe that our gracious God, on account of our weakness and infirmities ordained the sacraments for us, and it goes on later, it says, the better to present to our senses both that which he signifies to us by his word and that which he works inwardly in our hearts. So exactly, God doesn't need these outward visible things because he's not able to communicate himself, but we need these outward visible things because they're a help to us. Uh, And and that's part of the value of, of coming uh, to the Lord's Supper week after week after week. That was one of the reasons that uh, I think maybe four years ago now, uh, 2014 or thereabouts, uh, we began as a church celebrating the Lord's Supper every week because it forced us. Uh, we were thinking at the time, uh, Pastor Jerry and myself, when we were away at an, an elders retreat, and thinking about how we can make sure that the communication of the sermon came to a gospel point, that we weren't leaving on a legalistic note. And we realized, just just seeing the pattern, that when we would go from the sermon to the supper, uh, there's something about the supper that directs our thoughts in the direction of the gospel. Uh, That the supper proclaims not that we come by our own merits, but that the Lord draws us. It's a part of the communication of the supper. Uh, You'll often hear me say something like, uh, this table is not a potluck. We'll have a potluck later today where everybody brings their offering. That's not what the Lord's Supper is. It's a table set by the Lord for his people. He entertains us. He gives us his hospitality. It's his fellowship given to us, and it's, it's communicating that, and that's a help for us. Because so often, even I, as, as I'm preparing the sermon, and you probably as you're hearing the sermon, uh, we feel weighed down. And we come to the end of it, and it's this, we've seen the law again and we're undone and where can we go to realize uh, what's happening well we go to the table we go to God's communication to us that says it's not about how good you've done this week Uh, it's not about whether you can tick all the boxes and come in and say oh I'm worthy of the table no no no. The, the table proclaims that none of us are worthy and that's part of what God is communicating to us yet although we're not worthy the Lord is gracious and so it's a help to us. It's a benefit for us. Think of the Ebenezers. Now They were commanded by the Lord to remind God's people of his grace and his blessing. They weren't there just as a pile of stones, but the Lord would command these things. Think of the crossing of the Jordan, and he said grab 12 stones and set them up so that in time your children will say, what's that pile of stones all about? Let me tell you, son. Oh, it was great. And the Lord brought us through, and it's meant to communicate something. So, see, we can't we can't divorce what we're doing in the sacraments from what they mean because they're communication from the Lord. They're meant for us to, to see something of God and his grace for us. Now, here I think in, in the section in the catechism, or the confession rather, uh, it's, it's correcting a few misunderstandings of the sacraments. One, we've already begun to, to speak of uh, the direction of the sacraments. It says the sacraments are instituted by God. They're, uh, they're from him and they're given for us. You see that in Matthew chapter 28. And it says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the Lord is sending out his disciples. He doesn't gather them together and say, what sign do you think would be good? I don't know. What do you think would really capture the hearts of the people that you're speaking to? What would really get their juices flowing? No, no, no. Give them baptism. This is what the Lord has chosen. This is what he's chosen to communicate uh, in into Christ and our union with him and our, our identification with his death and his resurrection. There's something the Lord has chosen and given to us. So there's a direction coming here. The same thing happens with the Lord's Supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's the same idea. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, What do you think would be the best thing to do? No, no, no." Here's the bread, here's the wine, and do this. This is the sign that the Lord is giving you to communicate something of who he is. Now, what difference does that make? What difference does it make if we see the sacraments as primarily coming from the Lord or primarily coming from us? What do you think? Does it make a difference? Bill? How so? I agree with you, Bill. So what's the the difference? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Think of uh, of Jeremiah, chapter seventeen. The heart is deceitfully wicked, uh, and and beyond searching out, who can know it? Uh, well, what if we were to dig deep with all of our religious affections and come up with a perfect offering—not not a sacrament, but an offering—not something instituted by the Lord, but something given by us. Here's the best thing to uh, to show the Lord. What I believe and, and how I care about Him—filthy Filthy rag. rags—and and all of our righteousness is is this nothing. And we saw that happen already. Uh, we saw it happen with Cain and Abel, one generation after the fall. Well, here's here's my offering, God. This is what I thought was pretty good. Nope, uh, that's not what the Lord has required. It's not what He has desired to be communicated. I saw a hand in the back and a, heard a comment on the other side. Dave. little far-fetched for us to do the best that we could do. I think that's another, another blessing of the fact that these are things that come from the Lord and not from us. Uh, you're speaking of this, this lack of change. We're going to have the same thing for 2,000 years in the church, and the sacraments aren't going to change, and we probably do them a little bit differently than they did, uh, and they, they didn't have little plastic cups, and they didn't sit in nice, neat little rows and pass a tray. We understand that, but the sign is the same thing. And because it has endured for 2,000 years, because it's the same reality. How often are we tempted to change things because we want to keep up with the culture? Uh, I was reading this week, I don't don't know, oh, I don't know how I got onto it, but uh, this uh, consulting company uh, for church websites. Um, And here's what it says, and it, it felt really hokey to me, the the person who was running this consulting company was talking about helping this church to rebrand. That's what the new website was. It wasn't just a new website, it was a a rebranding. So this rebranding project included designing a new brand mark and a tagline for this amazing multi-generational church that was looking for a fresh way to tell their story. With the sacraments, we're not looking for a fresh way to tell our story. We're looking for something grounded in history and something that doesn't change. Physically, our bodies need food and drink to be sustained. Spiritually, we need food and drink, and that food and drink is the sacrificial death and the resurrection and the merit of Jesus Christ. That's what the table communicates to us, and that doesn't change. It doesn't matter if we have a new brand mark and some fancy website and some fresh way to communicate our vision— no, 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 There's something about these sacraments coming from the Lord and not from us uh, that grounds us in historical reality. Yeah. Gene? Yes. Great question. So you may remember that a few years ago we studied this in the session. It was raised by several folks in the church. Uh, and we came to the conclusion that the, the presence of the alcohol... Uh, is not one of the essentials of the sacrament. Now, it certainly was what they used, uh, and you get into this discussion, too, when you start to think about, well, must we use unleavened bread or can we use leavened bread? Almost to a man, the reformer said, it doesn't really matter. Um, and we said, well, there's, there's yeast, there's fermentation happening in the bread. And they said, well, no, but it's, it's bread, and the picture is sustenance. And so it is also with the picture of the wine. Now, there was some pretty good uh, debate uh, and study in our session. I think we still have the position paper that we put together. If, if anybody's interested to see it, uh, but this is something that, that we discussed. And we came out on the other side saying uh, we are still keeping the same symbols uh, of bread and wine. In fact, it's, it's interesting when you look in the scriptures, um, it, in every single instance, it speaks of a cup. Now, we, we understand that there's wine in the cup. We can go so far in the other direction. There are some churches that would be just teetotalers, and they try to explain away that Jesus and his disciples use wine because they have some sort of proclivity to, to be against alcohol. That's not where we're coming from. Uh, but in every single passage, it speaks of the cup and the bread. And, and so we do have a cup, and, it, and it's filled with uh, the juice of the grape, just as it was and it's simply not fermented. So, and, and there's room for debate on that, but basically what we came to was that the, uh, the presence of alcohol was not an essential to the sacrament. We were also dealing with some questions of, uh, well, what about those who might object to the use of alcohol for personal reasons? You think of a, uh, a situation uh, with a weaker brother and a stronger brother and not wanting to offend the weaker brother. And so a lot of our discussion revolved around is there um an element we can use that maintains uh that it's the same element, simply not changed by, by yeast and fermentation? Uh and is is there a, a way we can do it that is not objectionable to anyone in our congregation for uh for various spiritual reasons? And that's that's how we came on to, to that. Does that help to answer the question? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely using wine, yeah. We're not drinking fermented wine, no. Um, but uh, I would say that we're drinking the same element, simply not having undergone that change through fermentation. Um, and, and I would disagree. I think our studies through 1 Corinthians chapter 9 um, gave us some insight into how we ought to deal with the weaker brother. Um, and it wasn't a sacramental question, but Paul talked about eating meat sacrificed to idols and he said, if, if my eating meat would cause a weaker brother to sin, I won't eat meat, period. Um, now, you can get into situations it's sometimes called by Calvin uh, the tyranny of the weak, uh, that the church is simply run by, we're all walking on eggshells, and we don't want to offend anyone, and we, we don't want to do what Scripture actually tells us to do, and so we need to be careful not to go in that direction. Um, and and I'll, I'll be honest with you, there was a, a fair amount of debate uh, on the session as we went through these things, uh, and and we did come out uh, with this, and I'd be glad to share the position paper with anybody who's interested, uh, but we did come out uh, eventually unanimously uh, saying that this was the direction that we were going to go, uh, but fully conceding, uh, this is a change over the past 110 years in the church. Prior to the early 1900s, Everybody used fermented wine, period. Alcoholics are not alcoholics uh, in the church. Everybody used wine, and so this is a slight change, uh, but we didn't see this as an essential change, not like uh, well, should we use uh, the juice of of the grape or should we use something like soda or you know y- you can you can see it go in, in lots of very strange directions if you if you leave that well, how how far can you go uh, before it is an essential thing? Is it, is it fermentation? Uh, is it a different plant? It, you know, what if it was cranberry juice in New England? Well, you know, that communicates sustenance to New Englanders. What if we use cranberry juice? Well, no, 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 that, that's not the same thing. Um, so yeah, that's a sticky issue. Um, you may not all agree with me, uh, but I agree with the session, and, and I think this is what we've decided together, uh, and, and that's our position. Any other questions on that, by the way? Man, this is good. This is going to take up lots and lots of time. We might get two classes out of this. Cynthia and then Becky. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We discussed that option as well. Uh, And in fact, we discussed several options. One of the things that you'll notice is that we use gluten-free bread. Now, whether you want to call it bread or not bread, uh, is it a grain or is it a root vegetable and all these other things, here's where we get into some really sticky issues. And it's another idea of there were some folks in our church who were not taking the Lord's Supper um, because they they could not uh, physically receive the bread without adverse side effects. And so we thought about, well, lots of churches do it where they've got individual packets for those who are gluten intolerant, celiac disease, whatever. Um, And there are some churches where they've got the the outer ring and the inner ring. Uh, And our study through 1 Corinthians really revolved around uh, this question of because there is one bread, there is one body. Because there is one cup, we are one in Christ. Uh, And let's take a look there, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or 10. Nope, 1016 is participation. I believe it's in a. L- 10, 17. Is it 1017? Thank you. Did you read that, Mike? 16 and 17? Thank you. So this is where we came down on that one, uh, that that first verse there, uh, verse 16, speaks of a participation. The word is fellowship, uh, and it speaks of a fellowship that we have with Christ at the table. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship, a koinonia uh, with the Lord? Uh, And the bread that we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia in the body of Christ? And then because there is one bread we who are many are one body. And so part of our discussion was, is there an element that we can use that everyone can partake of without objection? And we were more worried of having, uh, oh, are, are you a wine drinker or a juice drinker? Uh, and there's, there's some subtle separation in a church when you go in that direction. Um, now, you all will probably travel and visit different churches where they do things differently. We go to Presbytery where they do things differently, and they have real wine, alcoholic wine, and they have, uh, they have gluten-free and non-gluten-free or all these, others, these other things. Uh, and that becomes an individual choice. As you're sitting in a worship service, uh, is it a matter of conscience that this wine doesn't have alcohol in it? And if so, will you be participating Uh, unlawfully Um, and that's a that's a hard thing to do but it's incumbent upon the leadership of the church to try and decide what's the best way that we can lead the church and we're the ones who will be accountable Uh, at the the end of days uh, those of you who are not in a part of making these decisions will not be held accountable for the decision of whether our church used uh, wine or juice Uh, but your elders will be and so I I assure you we we tried to take this very seriously Um, Obviously, it's, it's a sticky question, but, but our question there was, was there something we could do? Was there a way that we could observe the sacrament where there is one cup, one bread, everybody gets the same thing, and it's a picture of our unity together in Christ? Yeah. Becky, you had a question, then I'll come back to Gene. Was that directly on that, or can I come back to you after I'm done with Becky? Okay, Becky, then we'll come back to Gene. No. Nope. Uh, as part of a, a s- are there any legal issues with serving wine to minors? Not that I'm aware, not as a part of a, a religious uh, ceremony. Um, I can imagine there are probably some churches that take liberties with that, but uh, no, not in the, the amounts that, uh, that we would do that. I'm not aware of any legal <laughs> ramifications. Gene. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so, Gene, and then back to Dave. Uh, I mean, and, and that's a hard, that is a hard argument to refute. Uh, I would say that he mentioned bread and the cup if, if, we're, if we're starting to be um, really explicit in what's being said. We know that there was wine in the cup, but it says in every single scripture, uh, the cup. Um, and so will we be wiser than God? And that's the question. And I, I think the intention of the session of this church is not to try and be wiser than God and not to try and go in a direction that, obscures what's happening or the symbolism of the supper. Um, but this is, I don't know if, if any of the other members of the session want to speak to this. Uh, Mike? Mike? So now everybody sitting in this uh, class is later going to be trying to figure out who was who and who was on which side. (laughs) Who was on which side? I saw Dave's hand and then Scott's hand and then Bill's hand. And when you see the reformers talking about these things, um, they speak sometimes of, well, what do you do in extenuating circumstances? Um, Prisoners in Auschwitz gathering together to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and you don't have access to wine. You have access to something, Um, and so they they would, uh, obviously the reformers weren't concerned with Auschwitz, but they were concerned with, with other people in extenuating circumstances, and what do you do? Um, I don't think ours is a situation like that. We could have wine, and we have chosen not to, uh, and I'll be very clear with that one. So back to Scott and then over to Bill. Please, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. People, mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm.
0: So are so you are you asking um is the scripture laying a a requirement that it has to happen every time we come together? That's the question. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so I think there's a distinction between any time we eat and drink, which happens in a non-religious sense, in a non-sacramental sense all the time, um, and there actually is, in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or drink, that talking about uh, food sacrificed to idols, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So there, there's a, um, a non-sacramental sense in which everything we do, every time we eat, ought to be to God's glory. But there is a distinction between non-sacramental eating and drinking and sacramental eating and drinking. Uh, there is a specific uh, cup and bread that symbolizes Christ's death and it says you will proclaim Christ's death until he comes as often as you do this. And to do this in remembrance of me, I'll be with you in just a minute there, Rob. Um, and so I, I think the, the way it has been interpreted throughout history is that there is no hard and fast rule for how often we must do it. Uh, there is uh, a question among some that say, well, can we say that we have worshipped without doing that? If we gather for a Wednesday night service and we don't have the Lord's Supper, is that really a worship service? Is it essential uh, to the worship service? Uh, the, the general understanding of the Reformers, and I would be in line with them, is that no – uh, we are not required to observe the sacraments every time we come together. Um, and, and the way that gets hashed out throughout history, uh, it sort of swings, it ebbs, and it flows um, based on what some other churches are doing and how we may or may not want to be associated with some other churches. So That's what you, that's what you see happening. Many of the Reformers um, wanted, so this is, this is a misunderstanding that we have now, Many of the Reformers wanted to have the Lord's Supper every week because the Roman Catholic Church at that time was not having it every week. And so it was an intentional move in the direction away from Rome. What you see today is the opposite. When you have a church that starts talking about having the Lord's Supper every week, people say, that sounds Catholic. I don't want to do that. That sounds like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And and the question is, well, will we, we be dictated by what? somebody else is doing and what we do or do not want to be associated with. Rob, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think in context, you didn't talk about the Lord's supper you would disagree um, for the the simple reason that um, the Lord's Supper zeroes in on elements that in scripture are not essential to the Passover. In fact, in scripture, we hear about the lamb and the unleavened bread, which certainly shows up in the Lord's Supper. Uh, The the tradition of the different cups, the four cups and, and their meaning and significance, is not in scripture, but that's uh, rabbinic addition. And the way that it's, it's, I don't know, but it's, I, I, think, I think perhaps, yes. Um, but if we think about a Seder meal, you cannot have a Seder meal without a sacrificial lamb, which obviously is Christ. Uh, and so he's not calling us to observe the Passover, um, but something that is analogous to the Passover meal but I think analogous to a lot more. Um, we tend to restrict... Man, we're really getting into the weeds of this. This is great. Um, we, t- we tend to restrict the Lord's Supper um, just to being analogous to the Passover, um, but I think a better way to understand it is the culmination of all of the sacrificial meals because Christ is our perfect sacrifice. He is our Passover, but he is also the one in Hebrews uh, where all of these sacrifices point to him. And what happens when people gather together in the Old Testament to have a sacrifice? have a meal. Uh, so it happens once a year. It was supposed to happen once a year in the Passover, but it happens in lots of different settings as well. <laughs> yes? Hmm? I think he's talking about the Lord's Supper, something that is separate from <laughs> Right. That's a good question. That's a good question, um, and I think I've just never thought about it in those terms. He's taking some significance from the Passover. It's, it's obviously connected with, and we see when, it, when we go through, uh, it happens during the meal and after the meal, and so there's some significance. Um, but we need to be careful that we don't read into what he's giving us uh, some non-scriptural thing that we say, well, it, that's got to be what it is. Uh, we ought to be able to take all the pieces that we have in Scripture and put them together. Uh, The historical reality behind it really helps us to fill out the picture, like we do, we're going to talk through some of Egypt today and and slave systems, and uh, we go through 1 Corinthians, we talk about the historical background. So I think that's helpful, um, but uh, we shouldn't try to find the meaning of the Lord's Supper in a non-canonical rabbinical practice of the Seder meal. I think that's where I would fall on that one. Does that get to your question? Okay, I'll take that. That, That's good. I'm moving in the right direction with you, Rob. Good. Cynthia. Mm -hmm. In the early church, it seems to be the practice that every time they got together. Yep. Uh, You see in uh, in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers to the apostles' preaching and teaching. Um, and it seems to be that this is the regular practice, and, and it seems to be the question of every time they get together. And, and it was also often celebrated in connection with uh, a love feast. And you see some mention of that in the New Testament, where it was sometimes observed in the context of a meal, an actual meal where people would eat and receive sustenance and come away full and happy um and so there there's some indication in the new testament that that would happen and it happened probably every time they were together. Kathy. No, 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 this is good. Next time I teach a class, remind me not to ask everybody to interject. <laughs> no, I'm I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Please, Kathy, what's your what's your question? I, I think you're you're right on the money, um, but there are also analogies in the Old Testament um, of the assembly of God's people. That's what they would do together. Um, and, <coughs> you know, things like circumcision, which is one of the sacraments in the Old Testament, was not done individually in a home. It probably wasn't a part of a corporate worship service, but we see even in, in the New Testament, Jesus was presented at the temple Uh, on the eighth day. Well, there's a religious significance and there's a, it's not just something you do privately in your home, but you gather together in some sense with God's people and the means and the channels the Lord has ordained for these things. The sacraments are the the same sort of thing. Okay. Right. Right, so the aspect there is that the, the, the supper looks Um, in in two directions. So let's take a look there at, at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, yes, it, it points back to Christ and what he's done. Of course, when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, he had not yet died. Uh, and so he was giving them a sign that they would see in the coming day or a few days uh, and for us, it's, it's specifically a looking backwards to what Christ has done. It's a part of God's communication to us. When we see uh, the cup and the bread on the table, we are to remember the blood spilled out and the body broken for us. We look backwards. Uh, and, and that happens in the context of a body of people who are joined together by that sacrifice. Yeah, so we're gathered together with God's people, and we look back. Is that, is that the question you're asking? Okay. Uh, Sarah and I were discussing on the way here today, uh, my, my motto lately feels like, when in doubt, just keep talking. So if I just totally spoke over you, uh, if I totally spoke over you, please tell me. So, but, but we look backwards, but we also look forward. That's part of God's communication to us, uh, to bring us full circle. God communicating to us his direction from the, in the sacraments from him to us. It's a reminder of what Christ has done, and it's a reminder that Christ is coming back. Do this as often as you do it, whether that's every month, whether that's every week, whether that's once a year, like many of the, uh, the Scottish churches used to do. Um, and, and there, I think, is some freedom in how often we do it, uh, trying to figure out these things. Uh, but as often as you do it, here's what you ought to be doing. You ought to be understanding what God is communicating. You ought to be looking back to what Christ has done. You also ought to recognize his promises that he's coming back. And so the supper stands in the middle of those two realities. We live as the church. uh, You hear theologians sometimes talk about the already but the not yet. The kingdom has come, but it's not fulfilled. And Jesus has come and been raised to the right hand of the Father, but he's still coming back one day. And things are not yet as they ought to be. And the sacrament meets us right there in the middle of those two. Where is our hope when we come together as God's people for how we can get along in the world and what we do with our sin and how do we deal with you know, that sense of coming in week after week and still being under the foot uh, of some of these sins that, that tend to just ruin us, quite frankly. Well, where do we go? Well, we, we look to the supper because it shows us, it communicates to us, the fact that Christ has died and has been resurrected to deal with our sin. By one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. It's beautiful the way that you think of the tenses there. He has done this for those who are being this. Okay. Uh, it's, the, it's the already and the not yet. So, yeah, we come to the supper in the, in the midst of those two realities. When in doubt, keep talking. Brian. <laughs> not about the Lord's Supper. Okay. So, when done with that one, I'll be quiet when you finish. <laughs> um, let's, be, let's be done for now with the Lord's Supper. Go for it.
1: Mm -hmm. And so the sacraments are a core element of what is the Christian culture, Mm -hmm. so that we would instinctively draw back from things that are not Christian, Mm and the Hebrews never really established their Hebrew culture, because they didn't get rid of the other kinetic influences that were there, Mm -hmm. and that's why they were constantly falling back into sin, because they never had their pure culture. Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i i would agree to an extent with that and i think we've already seen that in and exactly what the westminster is saying what's part of uh the reason that god has given us to put a difference between the church and the world um and and there is a sense in which everybody gets to come to church and everybody gets to sing the songs and everybody gets to hear the preaching and when it's time for the lord's supper there are some that are not included now i would push back in saying that the the value of the sacraments is that they transcend local cultures into something bigger some some sort of christian culture not just a european or a north american think of much this would resonate in all the cultures of the world Christ is your bread and your drink everybody understands that and you see people of every race and nationality join together in one Christian culture to be a part of one thing and yeah the, the sacraments are a part of of gathering us together because there is one bread we are one body because there is one drink we who participate are one body in Christ and I, I would say yeah uh, to, to some degree I, I'd go along with that but I'd say let's uh let's make sure there are are you yeah that, yeah so where does it start and where right the point is, the most core element of yep of what in the world in. absolutely absolutely totally on that absolutely, off on a trail. good, good, hey, speaking of rabbit trails, let's pray well we're we're, <laughs> we're out of time, uh I think we'll come back to this next week, um we'll get two classes out of this. Uh, so next time, bring your hard questions, please. I mean, today that was, you know, that was easy stuff. Um, let, me, let me end uh, hopefully humbly by saying these are hard questions. These are, these are things that the church in lots of different areas and lots of different ways and lots of really bright individuals have been thinking about and debating for centuries Uh, and we still have these questions, Um, and so keep thinking, keep digging, keep asking uh, me and your session the hard questions, and Lord willing, uh, by God's wisdom, he's going to lead us all in the right direction according to his word, but let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we need your wisdom. We thank you for your sacraments. We thank you that you communicate your grace to us. We thank you that you show us Jesus in the supper and in the baptism. Help us to rejoice in who you are, O Lord. Help us to rejoice in your goodness to us, meet us not with our piety but with your grace. Meet us with uh, the reminder that you are all sufficient for your people uh, and that as we are still working some of these things out and wrapping our minds around really deep questions, uh, that you know all things from beginning to end uh, and you are the one who has everything uh, laid out and works it according to your will and so shape us according to your will. Uh, use the sacraments as a part of that as we gather together in worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.